Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. We're going to get started here on the Sermon on the Mount, so turn to Matthew 5 and I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to even have your word. What a miracle to even have your word. 2,000 years later, to have a copy of your word that we can carry around with us, that we can memorize, that we can learn, that we can call on you to interpret for us. We thank you for your word, and we thank you even more for your spirit. Lord, you've promised to come and open our minds and our, and our thoughts and our hearts, more importantly, to obey and to understand your word. And so we pray, Lord, that you do that this morning. Um, we're excited to be here because we know that you are a living God who enjoys speaking to your people. And so we pray you do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking about that this morning. You know, this, this Sermon on the Mount that we have, this is the longest sermon that we have of Jesus, the longest speech of Jesus that we have. And it's amazing that we have it. I mean, just think about if we didn't have it and somebody, you know, the news had come, you know, that there's this fragment that we found and it could be dated back and we know that it came from the first century and it's this long sermon of Jesus's and, and, and we didn't have anything like that before and we found it for the first time. Can you imagine how excited we'd be to, to see this? Sometimes through familiarity, we start to, you know, not value the word the way we should, but this is an amazing um, passage of, of preaching from, from our master, from our Lord, from our teacher, from our Savior. And so I'm super excited to get into it. We're right now starting a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to do this morning is the Beatitudes. Now that starts with um, verse 3, where he says, blessed are. And you might ask yourself, like, what are the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes, guys, are Jesus's description of who is truly blessed. Because you could look around the world, and you could look at your neighbors, and you can look at the things they have, you could look at the, the, the rich people and the famous people of our culture and think that maybe they're the ones that are blessed. Jesus wants to give us a description here of, of who's truly blessed, because the world is not as it seems, right? Um, and there's no commands in this section. You might feel like there's commands, but there's no commands in this section. There's just descriptions. There's descriptions of who is truly blessed. The, the word for blessed here, makarios, is, is a word that means maybe happy or carefree in some contexts. But here it has probably more the sense of who's truly fortunate. Weird word to use, right? Or, or who's the really lucky one? You know, Who's the one that's got everything going for them? Because, you know, we might think of our lives and, and weigh our lives against our neighbors. And, you know, with social media, there's a lot of ways to kind of compare ourselves to others. Do I have things going for me? Do I have the good life? And Jesus is going to say here, who is it that has everything going for them, even though it might not look like it right now? And, and before we look into these specific Beatitudes here, I want to say just a couple things to help you orient around the Beatitudes, which is that these are not a description of how we earn God's favor. I think it's really important to see that from the beginning. It's not as if, you know, if you were meek enough that somehow God will give you the world. Or, you know, if you were a peacemaker, then you're going to get these things. No, the Beatitudes describe the character, the hearts of those who are already saved, already citizens of Jesus' kingdom, and therefore already blessed. It's a description of peoples whose futures are secure. Secondly, the Beatitudes are a description of the character of all true Christians. I think it's important that we don't see these as eight kinds of Christians. I think sometimes, especially when it's done in a series where you do one after the other, you know, you might say, oh, well, there's different kinds of Christians. There's, you know, there's the meek ones. 
And there's the peacemaking ones. We really like those. And man, I hope I don't have to be a persecuted one. You know, like there's different types, you know, like I'll take this one and that one. No, just like the fruit of the spirit is a package deal. These are a package deal. This is the character of believers. Just like every blessing on here belongs to every Christian. Every character transformation in here is something that's for every Christian. And then thirdly, the Beatitudes are character qualities that all Christians can and will grow in. You might say, well, what is character? I don't think we talk much about character in our culture. Character, guys, one author said, character is that internal overall structure of the self that is revealed by our long-run patterns of behavior and from which our actions arise more or less automatically. So our character is that inside of our heart that produces long-range patterns. That's why we do things like credit reports and reference letters and things like that. Is because People tend to have a certain character, a certain long-run pattern of behavior, and that comes from their hearts. And the cool thing is, is that your character can change, which I think is just a massive blessing, guys. This, these descriptions in the Beatitudes are our character, they, it, which isn't really something we do, it's something we are. I think that's something I really want you to see this morning, is that the Beatitudes are not so much something we do, they're something we are, and something that we're becoming. We're becoming over time. And that's why there's no commands in here. The the Beatitudes are the character, guys, for which, if a person had the character of the Beatitudes, living the rest of the Sermon on the Mount would be the natural thing to do. Isn't that cool? That's why it comes in the beginning. Jesus is saying, I don't just want you to do these things, I want you to become the kind of person for which doing these things would be natural. And that's what he promises us. And some of that happened when you first came to Christ, and more of it's happening as you see and believe the gospel in a deeper way. Guys, wouldn't you love to have the kind of character for which doing the Sermon on the Mount was increasingly easy, increasingly natural? That's what Jesus wants to do in our hearts. And and attached to each one of these Beatitudes is a specific gospel blessing. We're going to look at it in these three sections. So first we're going to look at the first group of three, which is really the gospel transforms our character to give us new humility. That's what we're going to see first. Then we're going to see the gospel transforms our character to give us new desires. That's uh, the fourth Beatitude. And then we're going to see that the gospel transforms us to give us new relationships or to transform our relationships. Firstly, the gospel gives us new humility. These first three beatitudes, the poor in spirit, mourning, and meek, are all about giving us a new humility. Take a look at verse three. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Guys, most people in our culture believe that God owes them something. I think if we all look back on before we were saved, we would also say that, that God owes us answers. You know, well, when I see God, he's got a lot of explaining to do. You know, or I've got a lot of questions for him. That God owes us answers. Or that God owes us help. You know, that somehow, you know, even in the way we say God bless America, it's almost like God owes our country some blessing. Where is it? You know, there's kind of this entitlement. Um, Or that God owes us prosperity. Or God owes us health. Or God owes us a good eternal future. Because after all, I'm a pretty great person. So I expect and deserve great things from God. And guys, that explains why a lot of people are mad at God. Okay, like if you think God owes you something, all those things, then you're going to be pretty mad at God because life doesn't go that way, right? And so um, we might start to feel like God somehow owes us and he's not coming through on paying what he owes. The shock of the gospel, guys, is that God owes us nothing and we owe him everything. That's the shock of the gospel. The shock of the gospel is that we have this massive unpaid debt that we didn't know about. 
uh, a couple years ago, about 10 years ago, I'm a horse vet and we're in a group of veterinarians and we had an office manager and stuff like that. And one day we got a phone call from one of the companies that sells us pharmaceuticals saying, you owe us $210,000 and if you don't pay immediately, we're sending you to collections. And we had no idea. Okay, we had no idea we owed this money. We had not received any letters about this. And the reason was, we had an office manager that was embezzling from us. So she was embezzling from us, and then she was not paying the bills eventually, and then hiding the bills. And so all of a sudden, it's like, you have a massive debt. $210,000 debt, right? We were shocked. You get the same kind of shock when you read the Sermon on the Mount for the first time. You go, I fall ridiculously short of this. And like we talked about last week, people have come up with all kinds of different explanations for the Sermon on the Mount that it doesn't apply to us because it's like, surely this isn't me. Like I was with those companies. You sure you got the right company? You know, like, are you sure you've got the right phone number? Like this, but yes, we have a massive debt that we cannot pay, right? And that, that, that explains what he says in verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What he's saying is, lucky are the ones that realize they're spiritually broke, Because once you realize you have this massive debt, you can actually do something about it. And he's saying, blessed are those who know that they're poor in spirit. And what what are we called to do? Not to work a lot harder, not to find a repayment plan. What God wants us to do is declare bankruptcy, okay? And not the reorganizing kind of bankruptcy, the full bankruptcy. That we would come to him spiritually poor and receive Christ's righteousness as a gift. Because, guys, it says, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for they shall have the... The kingdom of God. Entrance into the kingdom of God is received as a gift, not earned. And this, this relates to, to the second one. Look at verse 5. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's painful, isn't it, guys, to see our own sin? To see our sin for the first time? It causes us to mourn. Because the debt that we have with God isn't just a financial debt. The debt we have with God is a relational debt. We have wronged a person, and the person that we've wronged is a person that's loved us more than anyone else ever has. He's the one that's given us life and breath and all things. I mean, take right now, take a breath. I need one. He gave you that. And you do that all the time without thinking about it, and it's a gift from God. Your heart beating. It's weird to think about your heart beating. What's the the average heart rate for a human being? I don't know. I'm not that kind of a doctor. 60? Somebody out there is like, mine's 40. Well, whatever, marathon boy. But um, your heart beats constantly without you thinking about it, without you doing anything, while you sleep, and if it stopped, you're dead, right? It's amazing. You think about it. It's a muscle just like any other muscle. It's a different type of muscle. It's smooth muscle. But it's a muscle that has been beating since you were an embryo. Wouldn't you think by now it's tired? Like, isn't it strange that it kept going? Isn't it strange that it does this? God gives you that. In Acts, it says that he's given us life and breath and all things, and that's the God that we rebel against, using those breaths and those heartbeats. (laughs) We rebel against him. And so uh, this blessed are those who mourn. It seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because you could translate it this way. Happy are the unhappy. You know, it seems kind of like an odd thing to say. What kind of unhappiness brings happiness? Well, I'll tell you what, guys. Look at the second half of the verse. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. The gospel has to disturb us before it can comfort us. The gospel has to cause us to mourn over our sin before it can give the comfort in the second half of the verse. Guys, one author said the gospel is this. I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe, and yet at the same time in Jesus, 
I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. Isn't that an awesome way of saying the gospel? I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe about myself. Like, I didn't want to see how sinful and flawed I am. And yet, at the same time in Jesus, I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. Guys, the gospel has to disturb us before it comforts us. Before it comforts us, it says, you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. All those things you've been hiding from others, all those things you hide from yourself, those are things that you have to be accountable for before God. And so I realized, like, I'm not a great person that deserves great things from God. I'm a sinner. The Sermon on the Mount shows me that. But then it readies me to receive the comfort of the gospel, guys. And the comfort of the gospel is is that in Jesus, I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. Just like I don't understand the depth of my sin, I have no way to understand the depth of his love and acceptance for me. And I think a lot of us walk around with about, you know, maybe a 40% understanding of God's love and acceptance that we have in Jesus. And we're transformed when we see more and more of that. And so um, this changed heart, this changed character also spills over into how we view others or how we carry ourselves with others. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Guys, the gospel produces meekness in our hearts. And I think meekness is not a word that we use very much, right? I don't know how many times you used it last week, but uh, probably not at all. Meekness is not weakness. This is cool. Meekness is a refusal to use your power to take advantage over others. It's, it's a refusal to take the power you have to seek advantages for yourself. Guys, we live in a culture that is not meek. Our nation was not founded on meekness. I love our country. We were not founded as a meek people, right? We live in a culture that constantly encourages us to fight for what we deserve. And it's easy for us in our culture to feel very entitled and to want to use whatever power, whatever resources we have to get the things we want. But meekness, the meek person, intentionally disarms themselves for the benefit of others. And we see that most in Christ. We'll get to that. But the meek person intentionally disarms himself um, for the benefit of others. And it's important, guys, to remember, too, when you think about meekness, that it's not a personality. It's a character type, not a personality type. I think that's really important because some people are quiet and reserved, right? And in our culture, they might say, well, that's meekness, quiet and reserved. A person that's quiet and reserved is not necessarily meek, okay? There are some people that are quiet and reserved and yet very manipulative and controlling, right? You can be an exteriorly quiet and reserved person and actually be very not meek, very controlling and manipulative. In fact, silence is a very effective way of getting control over others, isn't it? And so we're talking about a character quality, not a personality type. Also, meekness doesn't mean that we aren't assertive and fight for the rights of others. You might get this sense that like, okay, well, if I was meek, then, you know, what about the injustices that occur in the world? What about people that, that are being, um, you know, abused by society and, and don't have power in our culture? Can't we do anything about that? Yes, because meekness is just not fighting for control and power for ourselves. But certainly, you see it in Jesus. You see him standing up for, for social issues and, and people that were downtrodden. Um, it just means that we don't manipulate others to get what we need. And it, look at what it says here. It's so cool because we don't need to. Look at verse 5. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We don't need to manipulate and control others because guess what? You're going to inherit the earth. Isn't that an interesting promise? We don't have to fight for our way. The whole world is ours. And guys, Jesus says something really interesting here because he's actually quoting the Psalms. In Psalm 37, 11, it says, But the meek shall inherit the land. But what Jesus does here is he does something different. He says the earth, it has a different feel. It has a broader feel, right? In the Old Testament, God's people were promised the promised land as an eternal possession. 
In the New Testament, we find out that that promise has been expanded. It's not just a promised land. It's the entire world. It says that of, um, of uh, Abraham in Romans. It says that he inherited the world. And that God's expanded that promise so that when Christ returns, all of God's people, both Jews and Gentiles, Old Testament, New Testament believers, will inherit not just the promised land, but the whole world. He's going to come and make the world new. The meek shall inherit the earth. You can live meekly knowing that the whole world is yours. So the first section is all about that new humility. Now the next section, this, this next uh, beatitude is about our desires. The gospel gives us new desires. Look at verse 6. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. This is such a great one because when we see our spiritual poverty and when we mourn over our sin, we also get this burning desire to change, don't we? He also gives us burning desire. The gospel doesn't just give us forgiveness of sins. It gives us a yearning to be free from sin. They come as a package. Uh, He says here that he compares it to hunger and thirst. Guys, hunger and thirst are not comfortable, are they? Most of us probably don't know. That's why he didn't respond. Like, we live in a culture where we are basically never hungry or thirsty. These people lived in a culture where you could very well go without food for days, right? We would, you know, be like, I'm starving. And it's like, it's been three hours. Like, you're going to be fine. But hunger and thirst aren't comfortable, guys. The gospel's given us as in it, this new discontentment for the old way we lived. We have a discontentment. We have this gnawing hunger and thirst to be like Christ. I mean, we see that God himself has adopted us into his family. He's paid, us, paid our whole debt. Now we're desperate to be like him. We so badly want to please him. It's a hunger and a thirst. It's not comfortable. And I would just ask you guys this morning, Do you feel uncomfortable with your sin? Do you feel uncomfortable with this current stage of life that you're in and some of the issues of sin that you're wrestling with? Do you yearn to be free? I want to encourage you with two things. One is it's a sign of life. Christians can know they're alive because they feel a hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they're not content with where they're at. And secondly, verse 6 says, you're going to be satisfied. He's going to satisfy that desire. You know, we have hunger and thirst because there's a thing called food and water, right? We have a a thirst and a hunger for righteousness because Jesus said he will satisfy that. There is something to feed that. And some of that you're going to experience now as he continues to to remove sin's effects in your life and to decrease um, that by changing your internal character. But then one day when Christ returns, so cool, he's going to give us new bodies that are not going to be encumbered and they're not going to be dragged down with a desire for sin. I mean, you have people in your life that you think, When you really think about it, you think, I do not love them the way I should. You think about your workplace and think, ah, I'm not loving the way I should. You know, you think about your kids, I'm not loving the way I should, or your spouse, or your friends, or different people in your life where you're like, ah, and you want to do otherwise, you know, and you try to do otherwise, And, and God's changing that and making you a more loving person, but guys, that thing that's attached to you that drags you down and keeps you from living the kind of life you know you should live in Christ will be cut out of you. Isn't that cool? I just think we're going to be amazed by the lightness of our spirits when we're not dragging behind us this this predilection for sin. I mean, we don't even know what it's like to live free. You know, we're going to be like, whoa, how did I ever serve the Lord with that? You know, it's going to be just like the lightness of it. And so um, first he gives us a new humility. Secondly, he gives us new desires. And then these last three show us that the gospel gives us new relationships. 
And, and the cool thing is, he doesn't give us new relationships like he's going to give you new people. Because a lot of times that's what we think. That's what I need. I need new relationships. You need a new you, okay? That's what you really need because you're bringing that wherever you're going. And so the new relationships he gives is by changing you, by changing us. And, um, and he does that through making us, look at verse 7, merciful, verse 8, pure in heart, and verse 9, peacemakers. The gospel transforms our relationships, firstly, by making us merciful. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What's mercy? It's another word we don't use much. Wonder why. Mercy is compassion to those who are in need. Okay? People who have received God's mercy know how to grant mercy to other people. Um, C.S. Lewis said that, like, a Christian is a person who can forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in them. Right? Way with words. He should be an author. (laughs) God shows us this, this mercy that, that we can be merciful people. And, and, and Jesus talked about it in a really cool story. Look at Matthew 18. You're not far from there. Matthew 18, 21. I love this passage. One of my favorites. Peter comes up and he says, Jesus, how many times do I forgive my brother? Like, how many times do I do? Like, what's the limit? He goes, how about seven? It's a good biblical number. It could be three. It could be seven. It could be 12. You know, it's going to be one of those numbers, right? One of those biblical numbers. And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or some of your translations have 70 times seven. And, and then he says this. He says, he says, let me tell you a story. You know, he says, Peter, I see what you want to do. You want to set a limit. I get that. That kind of seems natural that you would set a limit of seven. But let me tell you a story. And this is what he tells him. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven will be compared with a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. And he began to settle. One was brought to him that owed him 10,000 talents. Now, we miss this because, you know, we don't operate in talents as money, as a type of money. But if you look in your margins, it'll tell you how much a talent is, and you can do some math, and you can figure this out yourself. I don't have any magic. Um, but he owed him 200,000 years' wages. Okay, so right off the bat, we're like, this is a strange story. Who loaned somebody that, right? What was he doing with it? So he owes him an unpayable debt. That's key, an unpayable debt. Like, we owe God an unpayable debt. And he says, since he was not able to pay, no joke, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and all that he had, that payment could be made. So the servant fell on his knees and implored the king, saying, Have mercy on me, and I will pay you everything. And it says, Out of pity or mercy for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. But when the same servant went out, he found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, math on that is, it's a hundred days' wage, which is a lot. I mean, if you made $60,000 a year, this is like $20,000 this guy owes. It's a lot. But is it anything compared to what he was just forgiven? Nothing, right? And look at what he does. This, this servant who's just been forgiven the 200,000 years wages grabs the guy who owes him 100 days wage and it says, and seized him and began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, see if this sounds familiar, have mercy with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported it to the master, all that had taken place. Then his master summons him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the master threw him into the jailers until he should pay all his debt. When's he going to get out? Never, right? So also my heavenly Father will do to each one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. What's the point? 
The point is, is that people who have received God's eternal mercy should be willing to give mercy out in all of their relationships. Like, we should be very liberal with mercy, right? I mean, just imagine the relief of this guy. His whole family was going to be sold, and he was going to be thrown in prison for an unpayable debt, and he's got off scot-free, and he walks out of there, and he immediately begins to choke somebody. Isn't that us? He says, be merciful. This character that Christ is giving us is a character so that we don't choke out others. I love that as an illustration of bitterness and unforgiveness. Imagine that the next time you're holding something over somebody is to think about you choking them. You know, that's what you're doing in your mind when you're bitter. You're choking them out. We don't choke out those who seek our forgiveness. We're not spiteful or vengeful or bitter or unforgiving. We've received infinite mercy, and so we don't keep count of the chances we've given out to other people. Isn't that powerful? The gospel transforms our relationships by giving us a character of mercy. Secondly, the gospel transforms our relationships by giving us a purity of heart. Look at verse 8. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. This, this pure in heart has a sense, as a relational sense, of being transparent before other people. You know, you've heard the saying, like, that person wears their heart on their sleeve. You know, we have these interesting sayings. The person is transparent. You don't have to wonder what they mean or what they want. They don't have ulterior motives, you know. What you see is what you get, right? Uh, my, one of my kids is reading um, To Kill a Mockingbird. And I love in To Kill a Mockingbird, I love how Atticus Fitch is described in there. This is the way Atticus is described. Atticus Finch is the same person in his house as he is on the public streets. Isn't that awesome? I just love that character in there because you see that in the book. You see he's the same person at home or in the public streets. Guys, we had our own Atticus Finch in this church, uh, an older man named Clint Albaugh. This was a guy, pure in heart. And everybody who knows him says that. You know, and he passed away last year. And I love what his wife said at his funeral. And I'm probably going to get emotional because it hit me so hard. His wife said this about him when she told this long, and it was amazing that she could even do this, but she, she talked all about her husband, Clint, and what kind of a man he was. And then she said this at the end. Clint was everything you thought he was. <laughs> Isn't that awesome for a wife, somebody who knew him inside out, knew everything about him, to be able to say to his church family, he was everything you thought he was. So awesome. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. And that's what Clint's doing right now. That's what he's been doing for almost a year. He's been seeing God. Lastly, the gospel transforms our character so that our relationships are characterized by peacemaking. Take a look at verse 9. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Guys, those who have experienced the forgiveness and peacemaking of the gospel have unique resources to help others come to peace. Isn't that cool? He doesn't just say peaceful people, because that's true, that Christian's character is a character of peace. A, a Christian is not one who stirs pots and creates drama, right? A Christian is one who de-escalates conflict wherever you put them. Drama doesn't follow them. You guys read the Babylon Bee? There's this, there's this uh, website, it's Babylon Bee, it's church satire, so it's all like, you know, um, joke church stories. But there was one, and some of them are not jokes, like this one. Drama still tragically follows local woman who just hates drama. And it talks about in there how she's just like, I just hate drama, but drama's always following me. Okay? You're quiet. That happens, okay? The Christian is a person that de-escalates conflict. And not only do we de-escalate conflict, but, but, we, but we are peacemakers. 
We're people who have benefited from the peacemaking of the gospel, and we're able to be agents of peacemaking in wherever we are. And we know, guys, that we talked about this earlier this year, that there's no true peace without true forgiveness. And, and forgiveness happens when there's a confession. And so we're the kind of people that when we're in an environment, we want to help people to come to a place where there's confession and forgiveness, bringing people together, guys. And that's an important part of our character because our role, guys, is to help others find peace with God. We're ambassadors of King Jesus. He sent us out with the gospel, with the peace plan. He has um, sent us here to explain the gospel and encourage others to come to peace with God. And so our relationships need to evidence that kind of peacemaking. Now, what's really interesting with all this, and, and you guys are probably waiting for it, is verse 10. Okay, Verse 10 is a strange twist. All these things you think, well, you know, if I were to live all these, everybody's going to dig me, right? Everybody's going to love me. Um, I'm going to have, you know happy situations anywhere I go. But look at what it says in verse 10. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's a strange twist. You know, surprisingly, not everybody will be happy with this transformed life that you have. And some will be. I don't want to overstate it because the next section that we're going to do is salt and light. Sometimes the world, sometimes those who aren't Christians are going to see this transformed character as salt and light and be attracted to the gospel through it. Sometimes, though, we're going to get reactions that are negative, like this says. And I think the important thing, especially to people like me and some of you probably who are more people pleasers, is you will assume you're doing something wrong. I must be doing it wrong, Okay. You might be doing it wrong, <laughs> but you might not be doing it wrong because these beatitudes also can get negative responses because these beatitudes aren't just the character of the kingdom and they aren't just the character of the citizens of the kingdom. These are the character of the king himself. Isn't that amazing? These are actually the character of the king. And some people have an issue with the king. And when we look like the king, it can cause trouble. Jesus embodies all of these perfectly, and they persecuted him without cause. I think sometimes we go, you know, hey, if we would just, you know, follow Jesus' teachings and live like Christ, then everybody would like us. The only problem with that is, what did the world do to him? They didn't all like him. And that's normal. Guys, the Beatitudes are a picture of the perfect character of Jesus, the ultimate blessed man. Isn't that cool? If, if these Beatitudes are about who is blessed, who is fortunate, who, who has life going for them, and if these are about the, the, the character of the kingdom, Jesus is an example of these perfectly. On the cross, Jesus embodied all of these Beatitudes perfectly. How about poor in spirit? Jesus, who is rich in righteousness and free from all sin and possessing all power, left his throne to become poor for us. He became poor so that we could share in his eternal riches. How about mourning? The prophet Isaiah says that Jesus came as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. On the cross, Jesus experienced that deep dread and sorrow and, and, and sinking feeling that you have when you're condemned for sin. But he was being condemned not for his, but for ours. On the cross, he mourned. What about meekness? Is, has there ever been a better example of somebody intentionally disarming themselves, setting aside all their rights and power? Philippians says that Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and being found in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that was all so we could inherit the earth. 
How about hungering and thirsting for righteousness? I was thinking about it, and one of the seven things we have that Jesus said on the cross was, I thirst. And many commentators have said that wasn't just his physical thirst. Jesus is experiencing what it's like to have the Father's presence evaporate from his presence. That he is losing, he has experienced the evaporating presence of the Father as he's our substitute on the cross. And he did that so that we'd be satisfied. Mercy. Jesus saw our distress and came to rescue us. Pure in heart. There was never a man like Jesus. So perfect. So someone that could wear their heart on a sleeve and, and, and it would be only a blessing to people. He was the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that we could see God. And then peacemaking. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, right? Offering himself on the cross to make peace between us and God. He reconciled us to God in his body. And what's neat is that reconciling work reverberates. It says in Ephesians that not only have we been brought to Christ, brought to God in Christ, but all, all nations, all races, all nationalities have been drawn to his throne. It says in Revelation that people from every nation and tribe and people and language will stand before the throne and before the Lamb. Jesus makes us a family of sons and daughters together. And Jesus wants to share all the blessings of this beatitude with you. He wants to give it to you today. It's not something you need to earn, but all the blessings of the beatitude here, all those second parts to every one of those beatitudes he wants to give to you today. And he also wants to transform you from the inside out so that your character would match all the first parts. They're both good news. The beatitudes aren't just something we do. They're something we are, and they're something we're becoming. They're something we're becoming. I mean, look at them and think of them that way. They're something They are something we're becoming. And I want to ask you, if you have not received Christ today, you can. And it would be as easy as calling out to him during worship. We're going to have two songs. And calling out to him in worship and admitting your sin, admitting your spiritual bankruptcy, right? And then asking to receive all the blessings he earned on the cross for you. You can do that today. And you know what else you can do today? If you're ready, you come to me, talk to me, we'll get you baptized today. You know, I could talk to you, we could get you ready, and we could baptize you today at 1230. So come to me and talk to me. Let's pray. Father, we, we're grateful, Lord. We're grateful that you have given us a way to experience all the blessings that Jesus earned for us in his death, in his life, in his resurrection. And we're thankful that you want to transform us. As we look at these Beatitudes, Lord, help us to look at them as a catalog of possibilities, a catalog of promises, Things that you say you will produce in us, Lord. Help us to seek them. Give us a thirst and a hunger more and more for this kind of righteousness. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.